Hi, and welcome to another episode of SwitchCast, a podcast delving into the world of film brought to you by the team at Switch. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Charlie David Page. I'm Jess Fenton. I'm Daniel Lamon. And I'm Brent Davidson. It's Thursday, the 22nd of March, 2018. On this week's show, with Ready Player One getting glowing reviews despite early fierce backlash, why do we collectively tear apart films before we've even seen them? And with subscription services on the rise and creeping into every facet of our lives, is cinema the next place to be taken over? And do Australians need it? And as always, all our reviews and giveaways. Let's get straight into it with Pacific Rim Uprising. Brent felt the earth move under his feet. So was this uprising an enjoyable experience for you? Oh boy, talk about taking a bullet for the team. You guys know me by now. I watch the terrible movies. I love the mass-produced. I am the lowest of lowest common denominators. Hell, you don't even have to pay me to watch League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. That's just my average Sunday afternoon. But Pacific Rim Uprising did not lick all the boxes that it promised to. Imagine this. It's a world set ten years after the events of the first Pacific Rim. Don't worry if you don't remember them. There is a good sort of minute or two at the beginning of the film where they will remind you what happened in the first one. It was a little while ago. We were born into a world at war. Between the monsters that destroyed our cities and the monsters we created to stop them. We thought we had sacrificed enough. But the war we thought we finished is just beginning. And the only thing standing in front of the apocalypse is us. But it doesn't matter where you came from, who believed in you and who didn't. This is our time, this is our chance to make a difference. Now let's get it done! That's what I'm talking about! So look, the first 20 minutes felt alright. It felt like there was something changing. They were having a bit of fun with the form. But things started to unravel quickly from there. The plot has gaping holes that defy not only the laws of narrative but also physics. And it's actually surprising that John Boyega's gone into this. He's actually so good in Star Wars. And here he is, and he's actually produced it, which is, you know, really putting your money where your mouth is. He's not terrible, but there is a scene where he attempts to give an Idris Elba-type rousing speech where, if you remember from the first one, Idris Elba claims that he will be cancelling the apocalypse. Whereas John Boyega just sort of screams, do you understand, so many times that it feels like he's talking to us, the audience member, both about his decision to be in the film and our willingness to watch it. Look, there are lots of things that are fun about it, but it's really, really shallow. Although I do have to admit, I really enjoyed watching one scene that is set in Sydney and just seeing all of the buildings get destroyed that I'd grown up with. It really did just actually feel like watching a Power Rangers movie, but finally set in my own town. Unfortunately, I was very disappointed by Pacific Rim Uprising. I really, really wanted to enjoy this, but at nearly two hours long, I walked away pretty disappointed, shaking my head and massaging my eyes that had been rolling for about one and a half hours. And that's why I'm giving Pacific Rim Uprising, without a colon in between it, one and a half stars. Okay, so I've seen the first one. I have... Zero interest in seeing this one. The first one was written and directed by Guillermo del Toro, and it was 
freaking awful. Yeah, it's not great. Why would I see this one when he has no association with it whatsoever? That's a great question, but Charlie Day is in both of them and he's excellent. (laughs) (laughs) Is that seriously the only thing it's got going for is Charlie Day? In what film is he excellent? In all films he is excellent. Well, he was in Pacific Rim and Pacific Rim was unfortunately (laughs) not excellent. Even when Charlie Hunnam took his shirt off, over and over again. No, I mean, no, and no, he no, was no, like no, 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 no. He only takes his shirt off once, and that is the only thing I remember from Pacific Rim. <laughs> and he wears a singlet once. They're the two moments. Everything else is fully clothed, and that was enough for me because he's fucking gorgeous. And the only is that why you like- liked Lost City of Z or whatever that bullshit was? He is not shirtless <laughs> at any point in Lost City of Z, and we are not going to talk about Lost City of Z because we're talking about Pacific Rim right now. Mm-hmm. Another bad film. I'm with Jess. I love Del Toro's films, but I did not like Pacific Rim at no. all. Thought it was, was so dumb. dumb. It was the, the concept was so stupid. They're like these giant monsters, and their idea is to build a wall. It's like, so what? So you just kind of these giant monsters just like, wading through the water on the other side of the wall while you live happily on one side. They're so freaking stupid. It doesn't matter because the monsters come along and go, whoa, you go smoosh now. And bam, in two seconds it's gone. (laughs) (laughs) It's definitely taking its inspiration from all of these sort of Japanese films that are very similar. So we're talking Godzilla, Attack of Titan, Attack on Titan. Good one. Pacific Rim is Neon Genesis Evangelion. Yeah, it's Just nowhere near as clever or well-written. I mean, Del Toro does that wonderful thing with pastiche in a lot of his films um, with, you know, gothic fantasies and horror films and classic monster films. But I found Pacific Rim past the point of pastiche to the point of actually just being lazy rip-offs. I'm with you, Jess. I don't know why there's another one and I have no real interest in seeing another one based purely on my experience of watching the first one. And I think the question needs to be asked, this is the second one in the series Was there still no one in the drawing room who was like, guys, maybe we just shouldn't put the word rim in the title of this film? (laughs) (laughs) And we're done. This is feeling vaguely reminiscent of a conversation we've previously had on this podcast. Oh my God, it is. Sorry. I still can't think of this film as anything but Pacific Rim 2 Arschlecken, so. Oh God. (laughs) Look, I think there's one really good reason for this film. Pacific Rim, despite its utter atrociousness, did end up making $400 million at the box office. And if they can make even a fraction of that, I think they'll be pretty happy. You know, this is... I don't know if they will be. I mean, it took a lot of effort. for Like, Del Toro was pretty open about how difficult it was to get a sequel to Pacific Rim and how disappointed Legendary and Warner Brothers were with the reception of the first one. I don't know. This better do damn well. Well, otherwise, that this franchise is over. Did anybody think the franchise was coming back after the first one? It sounds like you guys hated it. So, no. are, are you worried about not getting Pacific Rim three, Daniel? Hey, look, <laughs> if Charlie Hunnam comes back and he takes his shirt off, I might, you know, go along for the free popcorn and the perv. But, no, you know. I'm sure they're not going to ever bring him back. Well, that's the thing. I think everyone from the original film is being killed off essentially for this for this you particular film know. because. Uh, Charlie Day is in it. Except for Charlie Day, who is pretty well much the only unbankable mm. person in Pacific Rim. Like, he is not a draw card. I'm sorry. That's not a reason to go see a movie. Also, again, isn't this a ripoff of the sequel to Independence Day where it's like the kids of the first one taking, taking up the it mantle? It is, and it's 20 years later. So, yeah, it's oh, Well, it's, it's also the only way to do a film when none of the original cast want <laughs> to come back. 
And it went so well for Independence Day re whatever the sequel to Independence Day was called. Resurgence? I didn't understand his title. You can find my full review at maketheswitch.com.au and Pacific Rim Uprising is in cinemas now. Also out today is Peter Rabbit. Jess hopped to the cinema to catch this reimagining of a childhood icon. So can you forgive this very modern adaptation or does he deserve to be made into rabbit stew? Charlie, I'm a vegetarian. <laughs> really? <laughs> oh, yeah! <laughs> okay. Doesn't mean you can't stew him. Oh, God. Okay, no longer the adorable storybook bunny of our youth, this 21st century Peter Rabbit, voiced by James Corden, is funny, sassy, resourceful, fearless, and with a bit of an anger management problem. After besting his enemy, Mr. McGregor, played by Sam Neill, Peter and his furry friends run amok in Mr. McGregor's garden, finally free to gorge and play. That is, until McGregor's distant relative, Thomas, played by Donald Gleeson, comes to claim his inheritance. Needless to say, uptight Londoner Thomas and free spirit Peter do not get along. Long. And caught in the middle and completely unaware is B, Rose Byrne, Thomas's new neighbour, love interest, and the animal's biggest advocate and carer. Come on in! We've got the garden! Help yourself to anything! Wait, didn't you try to eat me? Show me your teeth. Do like a goat, like. <sighs> it was you! I knew it! How are you? So good to see you. One thing that could possibly stop our fun. McGregor is coming. Everyone hide. The new Peter Rabbit caught me completely off guard and showed me a really good time. It's smart, empathetic, and genuinely very funny. It has a fresh and unexpected voice cast in Daisy Ridley, Sia, and Margot Robbie, making this the third time Margot and Donald have shared screen time together. But here's where Peter and Powers failed to hit the mark. I'll start small. Looks-wise, it's quite bleak. There's a noticeable lack of bright colours and bright sparkling sunlight, especially for a children's film. And now for the big one. It's quite violent, with Thomas and Peter employing genuine hand-to-well-poor violence as well as weapons, electricity and explosives. Yes, there is an OTT disassociative element to it all, but some of it does actually get to you. Also, the rules to who can talk, who can hear and when are just non-existent. It's lazy and confusing. Look, Peter Rabbit has cute talking animals doing wacky things and the kids will love it. Just be prepared for some questions afterwards. Otherwise, I'm giving it three stars. Now, look, Jess, yes. I was willing to go with you on the, the Jumanji sequel working. I still haven't seen it, but I'm going to because I was like, Jess has convinced me. I'm going to go and see it. I'm sorry, I just can't <laughs> accept that this in any way won anybody over. <laughs> like the idea of this, we I wasn't here. I was away when you guys talked about this film after the trailer. <laughs> Even just the description of the film, it just seems so obnoxious. Yeah. Like certainly by comparison to how simple and clear the moral fables are in the Beatrix Potter stories, this just seems a little bit overblown and ridiculous. And it is, but it's fun and it's really cute. And to be honest with you, there's a part of me that questions how much I enjoyed this film because I took my 26-year-old partner, Sam, with me, who was a sea of uncontrollable laughter and giggles and walked out of the cinema talking about how much 
he loved the film and how good a time he had. And I was just blown He's away. He's a 12-year-old boy trapped in a 26-year-old man's body. So, yeah. This is also true. But I was like, I enjoyed watching my partner enjoy this film so Ooh, how voyeuristic. I think that, <laughs> I think that may be a contributing Sweet. factor. So I I don't know. But I, I did laugh myself. I did think it was cute. And I had some very good moments in it. But, yeah, obviously the responsible adult in me and maybe the little bit of the cynic did sit there and go holy crap this movie is really violent and actually displays a lot of sort of bad behavior for kids and I realized that it's all about actions and consequences and stuff like that but the consequences in this film are more of um, a breakup of relationships as opposed to if I set this explosive off it's going to kill someone else it's more like <laughs> oh well, that makes that person sad and I don't want that person to feel sad so therefore I'm sorry oh my god <laughs> Another question I have, because yes. I have no intention of ever seeing this film, so I'm going to live entirely vicariously <laughs> through you. Um, how British is it? Because Peter Rabbit is such a British institution. Mm. Like the Beatrix Potter stories are so British in their texture. Yes. Like, is it like Paddington where it captures that sense really nicely or does it feel like it's been Americanized? No, it feels like it's a bit Americanized. Well, first of all, it was shot in Australia and has quite a substantial Australian cast in Sia, Rose Byrne and Margot Robbie. Who, Margot Robbie narrates the film as well. She also plays one of Peter's sisters one of the triplets oh yeah no it and it's, it's an american director it's just yeah no it's not particularly british at all like you know they've all got british accents and um donald gleason's character works for harrods um mm. before he's fine and stuff like that so they've got these elements to it but no it doesn't feel british at all oh who can understand who like a grown man has a fist fight with a rabbit. Here's the thing. <laughs> the the animals never actually speak to the adults until the very end and they only choose to speak to one particular adult and then they don't speak again. So you're kind of like, well, if you can understand them and they can understand you, why don't you have this open line of communication? Yeah, and it's just kind say, of, hey, it's please don't weird. blow up my house anymore. I don't understand. Because, like, especially at the end, it's like all of this could have been resolved if if Peter or whoever just walked up to, <laughs> you know, the people involved and, say, and just said, you know, his apologies or what was supposed to happen, et cetera, et cetera. From your description, I do have two last questions. First of all, does Mr. McGregor die? And second, is Peter responsible? Because this inheritance yes, okay. thing, I'm like, Pete, yes. <laughs> No, 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 no. Mr. McGregor. Mr. McGregor does die. <laughs> Peter does claim responsibility for it, and <gasps> proudly so. However, he's not the actual. Fuck, that is fucked Mr. up. <laughs> this is fucked yeah, up. Yeah, it is. Yeah, he pooed in the water supply, and then he got fucking Giardia or something. Is he indirectly uh, responsible for it? Yes and no. Like, basically, basically, Mr. McGregor has a heart attack while he's fighting Peter. So you could sit there and say, okay, their fight caused a heart attack. Yes. No, Mr. They, no, he's they responsible. Explain, they explain later that Mr. McGregor's appalling diet and lifestyle choices contributed to his poor heart this health. Yeah, sure, but the final but the result is, is the a heart, heart attack, attack was, caused the heart attack by was a stressful situation. <laughs> the heart attack fighting was a to rabbit. Happen, I think is the the idea behind it anyway. Excuse me, Peter, how did Mr. McGregor die? I killed the fucker. He's not Batman. Like, <laughs> that's how I'm imagining it, though, and, you know, it's a better film for Gosh. it. Look, from a, from a dramaturgical perspective, I have issue with the adaptation process from the original source material. <laughs> Listening to this, um, I'm glad. But look, hey, at the end of the day, what you want to hear is that people enjoyed a film, and particularly like that you were able to enjoy it with, and like Sam was able to enjoy it. That's a great thing. I will not be seeing it, yeah. but I'm glad that you guys enjoyed it. Thank you. 
Well, if you plan on enjoying Peter Rabbit, it's in cinemas now and you can check out my full review at maketheswitch.com.au. Now, speaking of things we didn't enjoy, let's continue. (laughs) (laughs) That would be Mary Magdalene out today. This is the follow-up to Lion from director Garth Davis and his team. Daniel caught this one. So is this film writing on a wing and a prayer? (sighs) Who could it be? Believe it or not, it's Jesus. You could fill an entire episode from the groans we make after your puns. Like, they're getting more extreme. And also the pauses you make before you make the puns and how proud of them you are. There's a self-satisfied smile going on somewhere. But we're not here to talk about Charlie's puns any more than that's necessary. We're here to talk about film. So I'm going to do that now about Mary Magdalene. Please go ahead. You guys are not obsessed or anything. Thank you. Thank you. Inspired by biblical and historical texts, this new film from Garth Davies attempts to reframe Mary Magdalene, played by Rooney Mara, not as a prostitute, as she has been misrepresented, but as a young, independent woman trying to find meaning in a patriarchal society unable to accommodate her. When she hears the words of Jesus Christ, played by Joaquin Phoenix, she begins to find the answers she seeks and joins his disciples. She will do God's will. Why shouldn't she follow me? People will judge us. Are we so different from men? You must teach us different things. <laughs> Sometimes it's as if I'm not here at all. Is that what it feels like to be one with God? No one has ever asked me how it feels. The women are too afraid to be baptized with the men. Go to them. Be my hands. It's not right that he has raised you up to lead us. You love my son, don't you? You must prepare yourself like me. For what? To lose him. Mary Magdalene has all the best intentions, attempting to give agency back to an important woman in history consistently misunderstood. But the execution has nowhere near the rigour, passion or imagination needed for those intentions to land. Meandering and tedious, the film takes a long time going nowhere, weighed down by a clunky screenplay, laborious rhythms, and an unclear statement of intention. Even with similar collaborators to his brilliant debut film, Davies feels utterly at sea with this material. It's also barely Mary's story. Once Christ turns up, she simply becomes an observer, sitting and listening while the men around her act. Rooney Mara tries her best, but the material just isn't there, and much of the air is sucked away by Phoenix's indulgent and sulky performance. Understanding who this woman really was is certainly an important wrong to be corrected, but this film doesn't achieve that. It's basically about a strong-willed woman sacrificing her individuality to help a whiny, emo, white dude realise his dreams. Mary Magdalene could have been as radical as its protagonist. Instead, it's just familiar and dull. Two stars. This could not be a worse movie to come out at the worst possible time in Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. Easter? It is is about (laughs) a a woman's story that is being usurped by a man. And secondly, just going back to quote Daniel, a whiny emo white dude. I'm sorry. Jesus was not white. Yeah. No one in this film should be white. <laughs> there's there's a real effort with the casting in the film to be as multicultural as possible. And there are some really, like, it's a really quite except a diverse cast. Leads. Except the two leads. Which is really weird. And also, everyone has an accent 
except for the two of them. Ugh. It's like Gladiator or yeah, Alexander all over again. Yeah, that in itself is a little odd. I mean, I felt similarly to this in the way that I felt with Red Sparrow. Its intentions are to be about female empowerment and representing female characters. And in this particular case, you know, rectifying a wrong set against a historical figure. But he kind of just believes it will do that without having to put any effort into it. In my longer review, the written review, I point out that the difficulty with telling the story of Christ is that it's, even though it is such a great fucking story, like from a narrative perspective, it's one we're so familiar with. So if you're going to tell it again, you've kind of got to find a new way to do it. And showing it through Mary's perspective is not enough. I mean, at the very end of the film, there's a series of title cards which talk about when the Bible was written and the church was established, it was decided that they would represent her as a prostitute, even though she wasn't, um, about the texts that say that Mary was um, the closest disciple of Christ and that how the Vatican about two or three years ago announced that Mary was, in fact, the strongest of his disciples and that the idea of her being a prostitute was incorrect. But that comes up at the end, but you sit there going... So, where was that in the film? Where was that level of rewriting her position? There's also this moment at the end of the film where after Christ is resurrected, she comes back to the other disciples and says, you know, he says the kingdom of God is in all of us. As in, it's about what we do and the good in our hearts. And all of the men go, oh, no, sorry, Mary. We actually think he means that, like, he's going to come back and that the kingdom's really real. But thanks anyway. And, like, there's a moment where it could have been a real fire and brimstone moment to really establish her as an important figure and instead, it's just kind of like a, like a, oh, sure, Jan, that's exactly what he said. Sure, you saw him and he's back and we believe you, but we're men, so we think we know better. And she's like, oh, well, okay. What is it about Joaquin Phoenix and also Rooney Mara where they seem to have such mixed track records with films? Like, they have some really great roles, but then they do some really really bad films as well. I think in the case of Rooney Mara, this isn't, like, she is very good in it, but she's doing the best with what she has. Fair enough, yeah. And, like, she she does some really, really beautiful work in it. I was talking about this film with someone today and they said, when I hear the words Joaquin Phoenix playing Christ, I don't want to see that because it's going to be him indulging all his worst tendencies as an actor. He's a great actor if he's doing something out of the box for himself. This is not out of the box. He just kind of sits there on the side of the mountain going, Oh well, I'm you know I think everyone should be kind of nicer to one another. Like <laughs> for, in her case, it's just trying to do something exciting, but it's the film can't support it. And in his case, it's just he's sucking all the art because he's just so dull. And there are good there's good things in the film, but like, I wanted I wanted a last temptation of Christ. I wanted like something that was going to go and say let's reframe the story, look at it from a different perspective, look at it from a female perspective, see where women can fit within this. And instead, I got a really kind of dull version of the Passion of the Christ. Does the end of it involve her clutching her belly and running away, and then slowly the Da Vinci Code music starts playing? No, I d- it does not. It does not indulge in Dan Brownism. I did wonder if it would. Um, no. And there is, like, there's a little suggestion of maybe there is a bit of a thing between them, but it doesn't go anywhere because very soon he dies. What? Spoiler alert, <laughs> Jesus dies? Yeah, no, so Jesus is so in all of us, right. remember? He's in all of us. It's a weird follow-up to Lion, to be honest. To be honest, it sounds just like when I used to get forced to go to church as a teenager, and much like the body of Christ, it was rather dry. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, actually, very good. 
Very good, Brent. That is exactly what it was. Uh, yeah. Well, if, if you have the desire... Get on your knees and pop it in your mouth. I mean, whoops. <laughs> My God. My You're God. going straight to, the, to hell. You've gone to the bad place. Oh, it's going to be a party. <laughs> You can find my full review at makethetwitch.com.au and Mary Magdalene is in cinemas now. The Endless is also in cinemas today. The film tells the story of two brothers who return to the cult they fled from years ago to discover that the group's beliefs may be more sane than they once thought. What the Dickens brings you all the way out here? Everything you did. I come back now. There's something out here, isn't there? How is that possible? You want to know what it is that runs all this? You go find it. Written, directed, produced by and starring Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead, this creepy sci-fi thriller is packed with UFOs, cults and mysteries galore. Also out today is The Divine Order. Daniel took this trip back to the 1970s, so does this film get your vote in the affirmative? Set in 1971 in Switzerland on the eve of the referendum to allow women to vote, The Divine Order tells the story of Nora, played by Mari Leuenberger. A housewife who doesn't imagine anything for herself outside of the conservative domestic life she is obliged to keep. However, as she begins to realise just how a yes vote would change the rights of women in her country, she rallies the women of her rural town together to convince the men to vote in their favour. Highlighting an important moment in the history of women's liberation, The Divine Order is a gorgeous film, the work of writer and director Petra Volp. Focusing on the experiences of Nora and the other women in the town allows Volp to explore her country's uncomfortable history with women's rights and captures an important moment when the tide finally turned. The screenplay is a little laboured at times, but her direction is assured, often bold and full of integrity, charting Nora's understanding of herself as both a political being and a sexual one. Women are so much at the centre of this film, not just as the focus point of the narrative, but as the driving creative forces, with almost the entire creative team working with Volp made up of women. And it shows there's an integrity to representing female voices and stories in this film that can only come when women tell their stories themselves. This is a sweet, funny, moving and often surprising film that adds a new piece to the story of women's rights, told with great integrity, passion and skill. Three and a half stars. So this is one of a few films that we've seen recently which are kind of documenting the women's rights movement, um, which have been, to this point, quite a nice collection of films uh, kind of getting the story out. But as you say in your written review, Daniel, what really shocked me most of all was that this film is set so recently, like Switzerland, which you would think is a fairly progressive kind of country, Going back to only 1971, like that is just mind blowing to think that, you know, my father was alive during this time. That's just nuts. And it's not just the fact that women didn't have the right to vote in Switzerland. It also goes through quite a bit about marriage legislation in Switzerland, which basically dictated that men had complete control over their wives. So, like, for example, Nora, early in the film, Nora says to her husband um, that she wants to go out and get a job. And she needs written permission from him to be able to do that. 
So women in Switzerland at the time, every single part of their lives was controlled by what their husbands said they could and could not do. But in the, the world of the town, nobody really questions that until the vote starts to come up. And there is a faction within the community that does of women that believe that they don't want the vote. They don't want to have the right because it is part of the reason being the film is called The Divine Order is because that they believe that because of the divine order of God, they their place is in the home taking care of their husband. I mean, one of the, the ways in which the script is a little labored is that the men are a little two-dimensional, but at the same time, you kind of go, but it's a fucked situation. And in fact, I don't want to have sympathy for the men. I don't want to see them as being you know well-rounded characters because even the children are looking at their mothers and going, you're filth, you're horrible because you're a women's liber- a liberator. So, I learned a lot by watching this film, like filling in the gaps in terms of my understanding women's rights and women's history. Hmm. It sounds quite interesting. Well, you can find my full review at maketheswitch.com.au and The Divine Order is in cinemas now. Hitting cinemas this Friday is Buena Vista Social Club Adios. Nearly 20 years since the musicians of the Buena Vista Social Club exposed the world to Cuba's vibrant culture, we return to hear the band's story as they reflect on their remarkable careers and the extraordinary circumstances that brought them together. It was a real phenomenon. The one always does is that club. We knew that we had something incredible. It was like a social club. People were going crazy for them. This is the real Buena Vista Social Club. It was a, a huge hall, and on this floor, the people used to dance and they enjoyed life. Finally, Earth One Amazing Day is out this Saturday. Taking us through the events of our planet over the span of a day, the film looks at how the power of the sun creates life. We witness how birds greet it, reptiles are roused by it, plants grow with it, lions try to escape from it, and mayflies fleetingly play in its rays. Yet nature is a delicate system. We see life, death, and the struggle for survival played out on different continents and in wildly different climates. Earth, our home. The lucky planet, the magical dance of earth and sun, the vital ingredient for life itself. There's no question that this is some of the most spectacular footage of our planet ever captured. Using a variety of techniques and cutting edge equipment to bring this stunning 4K film to our screens, the production crew of Earth One Amazing Day in fact spent 142 days gathering these intricate moments, battling extreme temperatures, remote and rugged conditions, elusive creatures, and completely unpredictable scenarios. The team behind this epic documentary have caught on camera some real marvels. It is a little strange to hear Robert Redford's deep gravelly tones instead of David Attenborough, though he does do a good job. And it has to be said, the amount of information in the writing for the narration seemed to be a little bit lacking. But despite these minor qualms, there's so much to be in awe about for Earth One Amazing Day. Although it might not quite have the educational or the environmental impact of its predecessors, it's undoubtedly a superb look at worlds so far outside of our own. Four stars. So this is basically like all the like deleted shit they didn't put in Planet Earth 2 in like an hour, like 80 minutes, right? 
Like, that's pretty much... Because, I mean, that's what Earth was. It was pretty much just bits of planet Earth they didn't put into a film. Look, yeah, it's the same concept. It takes a few scenes from the series and it takes stuff that didn't make it in and it kind of combines that into a feature-length film. And, yeah, while while that sounds like you're not necessarily going to get the best material, it is. It's actually, like, it's a really good and very solid film. Um. So why is it Robert Redford and not David Attenborough? Well, they did the same for Earth when they released it. Um. They actually released earth with a few different versions um they had patrick stewart doing the british version and they had james l jones doing the american version but yeah for some reason they don't have david attenborough doing the feature length films which is a an odd choice this time around they just have um robert redford and jackie chan does the chinese version because there's a big portion of China involved in this and a large chunk of the production crew are Chinese as well so um, it was actually a co-production this this film so um, yeah Robert Redford is the man of choice and yeah I mean he does a decent job he's got a good gravitas to him but um, yeah it's just not the same as hearing that quintessential British Attenborough sound you know I'm not sure he's actually much of an as much of an institution in the states as he is here and in the UK I'm not not sure I don't don't think he, he he his, his voice is as resonant to the Americans as he is to us or people in the UK. Silly Americans. The, what? They don't know what they're missing out. <laughs> um, silly, I mean, silly Americans. I mean, I mean, sure, like, you know, it sounds like a cool opportunity to see this footage. I mean, Planet Earth 2 was beautifully shot, so it, it sounds like a good opportunity to see some of that footage on the big screen. Exactly. You get to actually see it in 4K, which is something most people at home do can't so in that respect yeah in that respect it's really really stunning like some of the shots you just are in absolute awe over very important question is the greatest action sequence ever captured on film involving the lizard and those snakes yeah quite a lot of it actually is in there and it is now i want to see it it, i want to see it it is that is like greatest action sequence of all time uh, like it's a step it is it's a little bit different from the tv series but it is just as impressive for anyone who hasn't seen it there are probably about 50 snakes waiting while these uh marine iguanas hatch under the sand and basically the first thing that these marine iguanas see and have to deal with in the outside world are <laughs> are just hordes and hordes of these fucking vicious snakes which chase them. Um, And so many, so many of these lizards die. They're an easy meal, essentially. And the footage of it is just nuts. Like, you cannot believe the speed of these animals. It's really some spectacular footage. But there's so many great things to see here. Like the the footage of the penguins in Antarctica, they've got some really cool footage of uh, narwhals. They've got actually one of the funniest parts of the film, and I believe this was in the series as well, is um, all these huge bears shedding their winter fur and kind of marking their territory by rubbing themselves against trees in this like hilarious Jungle Book-esque kind of moment and like planet earth 2 do you not see a single animal die no you definitely see a few animals oh well that's slightly different to the series because i'm gonna watch the series of like no animals have killed other animals oh like this is very yeah you know, this peter rabbit not- actually claims those deaths as well <laughs> 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 oh way to bring it back around nice well, if nature documentaries are your thing, you can find my full review at maketheswitch.com.au and Earth One Amazing Day is in cinemas from Saturday. All right, now let's take a look at the upcoming films in our trailer wrap. Here's Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald. Yes, Charlie, you pronounce it right, Grindelwald. 
There's a rumor that Newt's commander is headed to Paris. I know he's working under your orders. What do you have to say for yourself, Dumbledore? If you'd ever had the pleasure to teach him, you'd know Newt is not a great follower of orders. Are you going somewhere? No, we're going somewhere. Genius. I can't move against Grindelwald. It has to be you. I'm quietly excited, but also loudly hesitant about this film. <laughs> As you should be. Why? What on earth would give you reason to oh, do that? There are many, many things. They are breaking the canon. Let's put it that way. I'm sorry. Bye. No, no. Let me. Just... Okay. 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 Harry Potter fan in the house here. Uh, and you're saying that I am not? My cat is named after a fucking wizard. Sorry. When you say breaking the canon, when this film is written by J.K. Rowling, who invented the canon, what exactly are do you think Are we seriously going to sit here for the next 10 minutes and have a debate about whether or not you can disapparate and apparate oh, out of Hogwarts? Because if you are, I'm leaving. You just said about 50 words. I don't understand that. <laughs> so, Jess. Yes. Yes, I love Harry Potter. It's one of my absolute favorite books of all time. I went to every screening on every opening night, blah, 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 blah. Done. It's my life. I love it. Yes. But you can't tell me she, like, remembers the rules that she puts in place. So she's constantly fucking herself like this. So, oh, actually, can we no. cut out the fact that I just said J.K. Rowling is fucking herself? Because I love her. <laughs> and I, like, I'd love to meet her one day. Well, that's um, not going to happen now. <laughs> oh, God, I'm so sorry, J.K. Rowling. Oh, God, I feel worse about this than I do about Jesus. <laughs> okay. Anyway. There are some inconsistencies in the books and the canon that, yes, she has written, but if you're going to set something in what is now going to be called the Wizarding World of Harry Potter, <laughs> you need to follow the rules. So, rule one. This is part of the trailer. People apparate into the Hogwarts grounds. Now, Dumbledore specifically says in Half-Blood Prince, only he can do it. And Daniel, I know you and I have had this conversation about maybe this is why people cannot apparate and disapparate into Hogwarts, but you can't set it up and then straight away demolish it in the first friggin' scene. Of course you can. This film is set before the events in okay, Harry Potter. Okay, okay. It's not a scene. You can't, it's you a can't tell me. It's an apparating into Hogwarts rule can't. created because of the crimes of, of Grindelwald and then carried on because of Voldemort. Who knows? Like, I, you, like I would have seen the debate about, of it all. about a one second moment in a <laughs> teaser trailer. It's possibly the nerdiest yes, thing that's ever happened Deal on this podcast. It, and that's saying something. <laughs> oh, no, we've listened to a lot of Daniel's reviews. <laughs> you are debating the canon. And this, to me, to me, is actually the problem with the existence of this film. The actual film itself is secondary and is of it's no consequence. Entirely, yeah, entirely inconsequential. The, the issue, the reason I am, I am hesitant, and I actually quite liked Fantastic Beasts, but I liked Fantastic Beasts because I didn't think it was going to be another Harry Potter film. This is entirely just for myself. Listening to people saying the same thing. 
They can't disappoint her. It's like, it's, you haven't seen the film yet. You don't know what she's doing. My concerns are about the fact that David Yates is now directing his, what, fifth or sixth Harry Potter film. The direction and the art direction and the tone of Fantastic Beasts was incredibly problematic. And this trailer does not suggest to me that they're going to go back and rectify that. It feels like now it is simply about servicing fans' needs who, and I apologize to both of you, and I love Harry Potter as well. Like, I obsessed over every single one of those books. I think she's an incredible writer and I think they're an incredible work of literature. I I love them, but it's over. And I'm like my hesitation about Fantastic Beasts is I actually just kind of want to let Harry Potter go. These are parts of the story that, you know, we want to find out more about. Do we? The Harry Harry Potter fans don't have a Silmarillion or Hobbit to inform their Lord of the Rings. But do you need it? Like, my thing, the thing I loved about the idea of the Fantastic Beasts series was I was interested in finding out stuff about the rest of this world. I was interested in finding out stuff about, about magical creatures, about wizarding societies in different parts of the world. And that's what the first one kind of suggests that it might go to until all of a sudden it goes... Actually, if you're talking about things that annoyed you in the trailer, the first thing that annoyed me in this trailer was the sight of Hogwarts. I went, I'm done with Hogwarts. I'm done with that story. You want to build this world? Stop going back to the story that makes everybody feel comfortable, which is a story that is over, and actually just explore the world. I want to see Newt Scamander going around the fucking world collecting magical beasts and finding stuff. I want to see something different. For me, what I thought would have been a better guise if they wanted to do this Grindelwald story would be to frame it as each one of those like school texts. So we know that Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them was a school text. The next book could have been A History of Magic and we look at uh, Bathilda Bagshot and how she's like experiencing all of this. And, you know, we could get a Quidditch through the ages. We could get all these school books that form the curriculum. That's cool. Well, for those of you who are up for watching Harry Potter number 47, a.k.a. Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald, it's in Australian cinemas from the 15th of November. All right, now let's take a look at eighth grade. Hey, guys. uh, It's Kayla back with another video. So the topic of today's video is being yourself. Being yourself can be hard, and it's like, aren't I always being myself? And yeah, for sure. But being yourself is like not changing yourself to impress someone else. I think you're so cool. Maybe you just need to put yourself out there a little. I'm gonna stop and eating with hey, you if you I'm keep saying doing one, You said I could say one thing. I'm really like nervous all the time. I try really hard not to feel that way. But you just need to face your fears and let people know they're really you. Just grab my phone, how to charge it. Yeah, I mean, sometimes I charge it too. But my, my phone, I... Just because things are happening right now doesn't mean they're always gonna happen. Who was in there? Just sort of my hopes and dreams. Right. The idea of this film in general makes me insanely excited. It is an independent film. You do love film. a good coming-of-age story. I do. It's a coming-of-age <laughs> story. It is an independent film. I find it fascinating that the trials and tribulations of a 13, 14-year-old girl have been written and directed by an adult man. I don't find that an issue. I actually, Like I said, I find that fascinating. What I found refreshingly honest was that she had pimples. 
These actors never have yeah. pimples. <laughs> there is, there's a lot of shots in there where you can very, very obviously see her pimples on her face. It's not a bad thing. It's something we all deal with. No, it's it's incredibly realistic for sure. And the <laughs> fact that it's a film coming from A24, I mean, we've talked about, we had that long discussion about how A24 is one of the most exciting independent film companies coming out of the US and the amount of incredible films, including, speaking of great coming of age films, like the success with Lady Bird in the last 12 months. When I saw their involvement, I went, oh, okay, they're not slouches. And Bo Burnham, you know, he's known as a stand-up comedian. The fact that he's writing and directing his first film in A24 or supporting him, it feels like that is a vote of confidence in what the film could be. Yeah, I was the same. And I, I, I loved how awkward it was, like how awkward the performers were and how awkward they were in terms of their oh. bodies and with, with, with one another. It made me think about you talking about the age of 17 and the yes. end of last year. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's great to see the younger actors being genuinely awkward, but also you see the adults being equally as awkward. One, trying to kind of communicate and deal with these people, but two, also trying to be like kind of cool and on their same level. There's one point where you see an adult in the trailer actually saying it's going to be lit but it's those (laughs) things which actually make it kind of genuine and real and believable because that's the fucking stupid shit that adults do to try and connect with kids these days. It's it's yeah. genuine. It's real. I also love the scene. It's it's a, qu- a quick moment in the trailer where essentially this father and daughter are negotiating communication. Oh, where yeah. the father tries to say something and she shuts him down. He goes, you said I could say one thing. And it's like, it's so <laughs> true. It's so good. It's also a beautifully cut together trailer. Like as a piece of advertising, um, the combination of the rhythms of the trailer, the rhythms of the cuts, the use of music, like using Enya, which oh, is just wonderful. How good was Enya? I knew Brent would love that. Brent <laughs> loves it. Um, yeah, it's a really beautiful trailer. Certainly by comparison to the, to the Fantastic Beast trailer, which is very lazy, this is a really clear piece of advertising that sells the film well enough that all four of us are very excited. You know, I think I actually discovered Enya when I was in the eighth grade as well. So uh, this definitely means means a lot more to me. Also, I just want to be Enya. Like she's living her best life. (laughs) Wow. We are very far away from where we started. We have definitely sailed away from the original topic. Oh, oh, what are your life oh, no. She lives in a castle by the sea, surrounded by her cats, <laughs> and she just gets up every morning, looks at the ocean, feeds her cats, writes some poems sails. in English or Gaelic or Latin. I think she can speak. <laughs> and then, you know, just, you know, sings a bunch of songs. She's great. Anyway, please help us, Charlie. Get us back on track. <laughs> we'll only do two trailers this week because we've got a lot of reviews since. <laughs> <laughs> we'll only do two trailers this week because we talked so fucking much about Enya. But anyway, you can check out all of those trailers and many, many more at youtube.com forward slash make the switch AU. In the lead up to its release, social media was awash with people damning Steven Spielberg's upcoming Ready Player One before anyone had even seen it, only for it to receive glowing reviews after its premiere. This practice of ripping a film to pieces en masse based on even just its existence is becoming an even more prevalent trend. I stand very guilty of probably like 10 minutes ago. (laughs) In some cases, this has actually affected the success of the film on release. So why on earth are we proclaiming a film the Antichrist before anyone on the planet has even seen the damn thing? 
Yeah, Daniel, why are we? Hmm? Fantastic Beasts? Hmm. I mean, that has precedence because of it being a sequel to something. But I mean, this is, I mean, the films I'm talking about, like, think about things like Black Panther had a similar problem. Wrinkle in Times had a similar thing. I think Ready Player One was one of the most bizarre because it was like, literally nobody has seen this and everybody hates it already. Um, I think but you'll I mean, find I- the solid answer is nerds get irate about shit. If you couldn't have told before about me and just getting irate over Harry Potter or whatever it was, <laughs> these people get irate. So, And it's all like the classic geek nerds from the 80s. So we've got people shitting on Ghostbusters. Wow, I'm a man. How dare we see ladies play these roles? Wah, 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 wah. <laughs> uh, and then we see them shitting on Ready Player One, which is basically like a huge nostalgic injection of video games and references to 1980s pop culture specifically you know it it just makes a lot of sense it's these dudes who are trying to not have anyone taint their youth you know they're beautiful fantastic youth sitting behind a computer screen playing these beautiful video games but that's exactly what it is when you think about these movies that these people are getting so passionate about they are either books or comic books or video games or films that are either being remade or having sequels to them that already exist because they're stories and it just goes to show the passion of people it's just in human nature that we hoard and we revere our mm-hmm. stories and they are so much a part of our lives they're so we're ingrained with them they're part of our childhood they help shape a lot of the time the people that we actually are as well what we know what we don't know what we believe in what we don't believe in the stories that we then pass on to future generations and so there's this inherent ownership of them and so when someone comes along and there's an idea that these stories now might be tainted we do tend to Mm. lash out because it's it's a possession. I'm okay with a bit of passion. Like I'm totally up for people having opinions and sticking to them. But the problem is when that starts to extend into tainting other people's opinions. And I think some of the examples that Daniel brought up were for things like Black Panther and for things like A Wrinkle in Time. And uh, both of those very curiously had campaigns against them at kind of this very grassroots level. And both for probably very different reasons but um white straight men being angry that films were not being made for them well that's exactly like ghostbusters and i i think that's the case for black panther i think the wrinkle in time one is maybe more of a nostalgic thing but yeah possibly the race side of things does have an issue but it's when people then go on to sites like rotten tomatoes or imdb and they actually give it like a half star rating when a they haven't seen the film and b they're just doing it vindictively and putting just all this hatred out into the world for something that is meant to be, it's meant to be a piece of fun. Like film doesn't need to be taken that seriously. It's meant to be there for our enjoyment. And I mean, Come on, people. This, this, this isn't a new thing. I mean, last week, Charlie, you were talking about how when Michael Keaton was cast as Batman, people sent in like tens of thousands of letters saying yeah, that they didn't yeah. want him to play him to play. and like so this kind of level like even my grandmother refuses she hates gone with the wind because it's not like the book so this like thing of people having stories be very personal to them has always existed and will always happen when you adapt one story from one medium to the other the thing that i find really unnerving about this trend is all that stuff that you guys have also said but the fact that it also starts to actually affect the box office of the films themselves hmm. i mean ghostbusters the reboot of ghostbusters had its issues but it was already pretty clear it was going to do pretty badly because there was such a tide 
of negativity towards it. And as much as that's a negativity that is often just held to social media, we underestimate, and I think to a certain extent, maybe the film world has underestimated just how big a reach social media now has. I mean, films like Black Panther had, you know, it, it was fine, like the film did really well, but it's clearly happened with A Wrinkle in Time. There's evidence to suggest that it may have happened with Blade Runner, maybe, and it definitely happened with Ghostbusters. And I wouldn't be surprised if it happens with Ready Player One that, yes, bombarding IMDb and Rotten Tomatoes with unsolicited reviews before anyone's seen them, um, continuous backlash online that's often quite violent and becomes quite divisive. But it's the fact that this is now translating into a business problem. And how does Hollywood deal with a business issue? Yeah, it, I mean, it's a tricky situation as if Hollywood doesn't have enough problems with, you know, issues with box office and attendance and, piracy and, uh, and just general like shitty Hollywood films. And yeah, exactly. As much as we kind of make light of the fact that Netflix is taking over the world and, and we'll talk about this a bit in our next topic as well, but there is actually a serious problem with money and Hollywood. And it's a little bit concerning, especially when you're finding some of these bigger films, as you said, something like a Blade Runner 2049, which starts getting a bit of bad chatter about it. You know, people are having issues with the fact that it's a remake of a really classic film and they're worried and they're concerned and kind of start lashing out. And then you start seeing that reflected in in its box mm. office. Then that does become a concern. And it's really hard to combat that because, I mean, it's the internet, it's social media it's that's not something you can actually like put a plug in that thing is just gonna keep going yeah and it's one of those things as well in terms of social media and negativity that more people subscribe to negativity than they do positivity so i remember reading an article about this man who used to sort of shame people on the new york subway and he was like that Twitter handle that I created was followed by millions. My Twitter handle that I would just regularly post about was followed by like 200. But people ate up the anger and the hatred and that's what they want to see. So that's why bad reviews will always do better. It's just, I just find the phenomenon really bizarre. And exactly as you said, Charlie, film is there to be to be loved and to be enjoyed and be shared one should have goodwill towards these things. At the very least, until you've seen it and been able to make a decision for yourself and decide that then, yes, you don't like it. That's fair enough. But Mm. yeah, I think the presumption that films are going to suck because of something that you have seen probably less than two minutes of, if Mm. that, yeah, I think that's, that's probably quite toxic as far as anyone who loves film goes. Yeah, We all have Netflix, right? Some of us might even luxuriate in the divine presence of Stan. Who's Stan? Is he hot? I don't know, Daniel. Why don't you go and luxuriate in his presence? Oh! It's safe to say that subscription services and Daniel are on the rise. And we have revolutionized the home entertainment market. So what about the out-of-home market? Founded in 2011, there is a service in the US that lets you subscribe to see one film a day in the cinema for a mere $9.95 a month. And they throw in a set of steak knives. No, I'm joking. That's basically less than a single ticket. With a similar service supposedly to launch in the UK, is a time Australia followed suit? And would y'all sign up for it? I think that's the big question here. Like, is this kind of something Australia would benefit from? Because I think we're finding the same trend as the US and the UK at the moment, where we're finding less and less people are going to the cinemas because prices are actually rising. Would a subscription service such as this 
actually be of benefit to Australia and the Australian film industry. And yeah, the initial fee was actually 50 bucks. And personally, I would still pay that for a month's worth of movies. I could see a lot of movies in a month. Yeah, Charlie, I just did some quick calculations. Oh, yes. And $10 a month uh, over a year is $120. Divide that by 365 days. If you were to see a movie a day using this subscription (laughs) service, you would only be paying... 32 cents a movie. Holy shit. As opposed to I $20 think that's plus. Just quietly. Yeah. Although you, you may die from seeing that many movies, but. Even if you halved that, that's yeah, 64 I know. It's still, cents a movie. <laughs> that's still so worth it. Yeah. And I think it'd do wonders for the Australian cinema business as well. So. To yes. play devil's advocate, though, and I, I think it would be a great service as well. I think it would work really well. But I don't know whether or not Australia has the movie going culture that America has. But what if this service created that culture? Because which it's would be more fucking wonderful. Now. You've got more movies, more bums on seats, which means a better diversity in films and cinemas to combat the demand. And people people who can't afford to see a movie now can all of a sudden go see many in a week yeah, if they that wanted actually, to. Yeah, that is a very good point. Well, one of the areas in which I think it's benefited in the US is the support of independent film and the support of independent cinemas because mm-hmm. um, they have such a strong independent sector and the uk does as well like the kind of the independent they have quite a strong film industry in the uk as jess said maybe having something like this here would actually encourage people to then go and see australian films and it might bolster and strengthen the australian film industry yay yeah when you think about it, okay so like you know on a personal level so i come from a family of five which means in today's prices for the the five members of my family, including myself, to go see a movie, it would cost us It'd be over a week's pay. It would cost us over a hundred dollars. In under this system, it wouldn't even cost. It would cost us half of that for all five of us to be subscribed for an entire year. Yeah, I come from a family of like nine kids and four parents. Like for my family in Queensland to go to the movies, it's yeah. not possible yeah, to go exactly. together because there are like ten of them. So yeah, it would totally change the way that we're able to access. Cinemas. I mean, for one, it would make it more affordable. For two, it would make it not just like a once in a few months outing for families, especially bigger families like yours, Daniel. But three, yeah. it means that people don't necessarily have to choose which film they want to see. Like if I only have enough in my budget for one film, it means I don't have to choose between seeing, you know, the big blockbuster of the week or the small indie of the week or the comedy of the yeah. week. You can go to all of them. You might encourage people to go to see a film they usually wouldn't. I mean, we have that advantage yeah. as reviewers because we see a lot of films and you come across some real gems. This might mean that people might discover little God's own countries or- How did I know um, that was you know, the example like, you were going to go straight to? <laughs> well, I'm just thinking of films that had not done- overly big business in Australia that would have fallen off the radar. Like, it means that maybe they'll find them. Yay! Yay. More films for everyone! You get a nice follow-on from the previous topic of now saying, now let's all celebrate films! (laughs) Everybody gets a movie! Speaking of, that's a good segue. Everybody gets a movie. Yes, because we have some great giveaways up for grabs this week. First up, we're giving you the chance to win one of five copies of Paddington 2 on Blu-ray. When Uncle... Whoops. When Aunt Lucy's 100th birthday approaches, <laughs> sweethearted Paddington sets out to find his favourite auntie the perfect gift. His search leads him to discover a unique pop-up book of London, but he becomes a witness when it's stolen by a mysterious bearded thief. Ooh. Poor Paddington is unfairly accused of the crime and must clear his name and unmask the culprit before Aunt Lucy's big birthday bash. 
And everybody, check under your seats, because we're also giving away five <laughs> copies of Duckman, the complete series. Yay! Duckman isn't your average, suave, sophisticated private eye. In fact, he's rude, ignorant, and slovenly, and he barely manages to solve enough cases to cover his alimony and pay his bills. This DVD collection features all 70 episodes from the show, and features the voices of Jason Alexander, Elizabeth Daly, and Nancy Travers. Finally, we have five copies of Murder on the Orient Express up for grabs. Kenneth Branagh directs and leads an all-star cast, including Johnny Depp, Michelle Pfeiffer, Penelope Cruz, and Judi Dench, in this stylish, suspenseful, and thrilling mystery based on the best-selling novel by Agatha Christie. Everyone's a suspect when a murder is committed on a lavish train ride, and brilliant detective Hercule Poirot must race against time to solve the puzzle before the killer strikes again, or his moustache is out of place. To win this and all our amazing prizes, head to maketheswitch.com.au forward slash comps now. Before we go, we'd like to offer you some cinematic inspiration with each of us suggesting one film that you should see this week and why. Because we still live in Australia where they don't have a subscription pass where you can go see as many films as you want. For me, I'm going to I'm gonna choose a really surprising film that I saw back in 2011. This is when I went actually and saw with one of my friends, Ross. Um, and we were both actually completely blown away at this story. It is Salmon Fishing in the Yemen. Uh, it stars... Ewan McGregor and Emily Blunt in kind of the two lead roles. Uh, And it's this really bizarre story. It's surprisingly true, but it's basically about this guy who gives up his job, his very well-paying job, and decides to help this sheik bring to life his dream of creating a river and fly fishing in the middle of a desert. And it sounds completely nuts, but it's this kind of aspirational film it's really beautifully played out by Ewan McGregor and Emily Blunt it's also got Kristen Scott Thomas in it it's got Rachel Sterling in it and it's actually beautifully beautifully shot and I think it actually shows off Ewan McGregor as one of the more underrated actors that we have so yeah I would recommend Salmon Fishing in the Yemen for you all to check out this week. Jess, your turn. What are you going to recommend? Um, I'm going to recommend a documentary from 2010 called Exit Through the Gift Shop. It is. Di- oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, di- it's about street art. It's directed by Banksy, who uh, would probably be the. Or is it? Ironically, the face of street art. <laughs> One of the things I love most about this film is that you cut. It is ineffable. You cannot describe this film without actually spoiling what it's really about. So the best I can say is it is about street art. And that's literally all I'm going to say because you you truly have to see this film to understand what I'm talking about. Um, it Let's just say that it does not end where it began. It ends... <laughs> It's yes, it's almost like two films smacked together in the most bizarre, fabulously bizarre uh, fashion. Um, yeah, I'm gonna leave, I'm gonna leave this one steeped in mystery and intrigue. You know what? Mysteries it, galore. It is, That's what it's got. Yeah, but it, it, is a, it is a great <laughs> documentary. It She's is in fantastic. It is fascinating, and it is hilarious as hell. And um, yeah, I highly recommend Banksy's. Exit through the gift shop. Very cool. Daniel, you're up next. What is your recommendation for the week? Well, I'm not going to go that far out of the timeline. Um, I'm going to go with a film from 2014. I have a tendency to love films that other people do not. um, Films that people generally hate Mm. um, or have really strong opinions about. And this is one of them. 
Um, and it was actually in my top five films for the, this particular year, I think, if I remember rightly. And that is from one of our favorite directors' names <gasps> to say often. Yes! Darren Aronofsky. <laughs> um, but it is his biblical epic, Noah. Oh. And I, I, this comes, this comes to mind because I walked out of Mary Magdalene thinking, I wish this had been more radical. And I thought, well, what do I think of when I think of a radical biblical film? Um, one would be Scorsese's Last Temptation of Christ, but more so I would think of Aronofsky's Noah. It's the story of Noah, but um, Aronofsky has gone back to the very, very early texts and also the other texts in all of the other religions that mention the story of a great flood. It's in every single religious creation story and this figure who builds this boat in which what is left of humanity is kept. Um, it's fucking batshit nuts, but it is incredibly ambitious, beautifully made, beautifully scored. The performances are really good, particularly Russell Crowe, which is a really big surprise. It's one of his best performances in a really long time. I just fucking love its ambition and its refusal to comply with pre-established concepts of what the function of the Bible is. It is a lot more violent. It's a lot more radical. It feels a lot more accurate to the ideas. And the imaginative side of this film is extraordinary. So, as much as a lot of people fucking hate it, I'm going to recommend Darren Aronofsky's Noah. Darren Aronofsky. Darren Aronofsky. Darren Aronofsky. Darren Aronofsky is nothing if not decisive with his films. That is for sure. And divisive. Decisive and divisive. Oh, my God. Radical. I think but eventually we're going to just have recommended every Darren Aronofsky film on this. Because you've already recommended <laughs> Requiem for a Dream, and I certainly have a fuck yep, lot more to yep. do. I'm still got, I still haven't recommended my favorite Aronofsky film yet, but you'll just have to wait and see one. He actually doesn't have that many, so yeah. <laughs> no, that's very Okay, Brent, it's your turn. You're up and wrapping up this recommendation segment. So what are you going to pick? This? <clears throat> God help us. I'm going to take us even further back in time. So I'm going back to 1955, and this is a film that what? starred a young... Oh, I know. He knows films more than, like, three years old. It's surprising for everyone. <laughs> wait, well, let's wait and hear what it is first. Lead of Extraordinary Gentlemen is more than three years old. <laughs> you know what I mean. It's not League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. This is actually a film that starred a young, unknown actor and shot him to stardom. That young, unknown actor was, of course... James Dean, and the film is, of course, East of Eden. Now, this is just a phenomenal film about the American dream based on John Steinbeck's East of Eden, which I've tried to read, but it is dry <laughs> and really boring, and I just don't care. Uh, but the film is really good. So James Dean is, you know, playing a fantastic character in that he always does a sort of troubled teen, torn between two worlds, who's just trying to appease his father, but his performance is so fantastic that it's like no wonder that he ended up being as big as he was. But it's a beautiful film. The score is wonderful. The actual cinematography is really interesting as well. A lot of people probably don't think about the cinematography in a film like this, but there's a scene where he and his father have a conversation at the dinner table and just the angles of all the shots in that scene and the lighting, ugh, it's just perfection and you know i guess we're going with a bit of a biblical theme here aren't we it's great Let's go get see it biblical biblical, <laughs> get biblical. doesn't that mean fucking doesn't getting biblical with someone mean sure. fucking <laughs> that's, yeah. that's the case that's certainly the case in noah definitely probably the case yeah. in mary magdalene at points no but you can say like i got to know blah blah 
biblical, in a biblical yes. sense. Jesus. Yeah. Slightly different turn of phrase, but we get the point. So East of Eden is my recommendation. The first ever film James Dean starred in. So you only have one more James Dean film left that you can recommend because you've already recommended his first two films. Yep. Now you only have Giant left. Yeah, but I'm not as big a fan of Giant. <laughs> well, Brent, I for one am very glad that you chose East of Eden, Brent. And that is the last of our suggestions for this week. And you can find the links to all the articles we've talked about on this week's podcast at maketheswitch.com.au. Please subscribe to Switchcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. And don't forget to rate us and stay in touch on Twitter. I'm at Charlie underscore David. Jess. At Miss Jess underscore Switch. Daniel. At Daniel Lamon. And Brent. At Brent C. Davidson. Like it? Follow it. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Make the Switch AU to stay up to date with all the latest reviews, news, trailers, and giveaways. And you can find all the notes and links to everything we've discussed on this week's podcast, as well as all the other episodes by visiting switchcast.com.au. On next week's show, if you're not sick of my high-pitched, squeaking, annoying, opinionated voice yet, you're in for a treat. (laughs) I'll be taking a look at Steven Spielberg's Vision of the Future in Ready Player One, communist comedy Death of Stalin, Disney's adaptation of the classic fantasy novel A Wrinkle in Time, and the queer coming-of-age film Love, Simon. But wait, there's more. As someone who had to endure Daniel's high-pitched screaming and his guttural grunting during this film, I'll be bringing the laughs when I check out Leslie Mann, John Cena, and Ike Bayernholtz in Blockers. Plus, we'll have our verdict on Ardman's latest animation, Early Man, and Silver Berlin Bear winner, The Other Side of Hope. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you all next week. <laughs>